welcome to series three of the Tim Hill podcast. In the last two series, I've told you about my life. I've met many interesting people along the way who have become my friends. And what they all have in common is they all have fascinating stories of their own, which they are happy to share with you now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Tim Hill podcast. In this episode, I'm having a chat with Mike. Mike's going to tell us all about his life. So Mike, if you can tell us where and when you were born, and if you can describe what it was like, where you grew up, the type of schools that you went to, and the education that you received. Over to you, Mike. I was born on the 12th of September 1942 in Stoke-on-Trent. At the time, World War II was in progress. My father was on bomber command as our ground crew, and so he was away most of the time. So I lived with my mother at the uh, my grandparents' house in in uh, Oak Hill, Stoke-on-Trent. I grew up there, and my grandfather was a very very keen fisherman. So I spent an awful lot of time with him, fishing, fly fishing, and uh, also some some coarse fishing. He would be up to his chest in water and. I would be uh, fishing for minnows from the bank. At the end of the war, my father left the RAF and uh, worked for my grandfather at the Michelin Tire Company for a while. But the ties of the RAF were strong, and so he rejoined the RAF. And very soon after that, in uh, 1952, he was posted to Germany. And my mother, and by this time I had two brothers, and uh, we all went to Germany, to, to Goodersloe, and most of my remembered life is, is growing up in uh, Germany. So you're a pad brat then? I was a pad brat, yeah. I, uh, I went to one of the uh, British Forces primary schools in, uh, in Goodersloe. I had lots and lots of friends there, and lots and lots, surprisingly, lots and lots of freedom. Um, I learnt German because I had some German friends, but we just roamed as children the the German countryside, and uh, really had a great great time. I w- I took up um, long distance running as at the age of about eight and became quite proficient. Um, I started doing gymnastics, and later on I joined the the Scouts, and that continued really for uh, for the rest of my teenage years. When I was 11, I went to the uh, British Forces boarding school at Ham, Windsor School, Ham, and I spent two years there in Forms 1 and then Form 2 in the grammar stream. And then then we came back to England, but if I can just go back to um, Windsor School, Ham, that is where my sailing career started because there was a, the opportunity there to go sailing on the Monazé. Um, we used to go on... Wednesday afternoons to the Canadian Officers Club there and we started off in 16 foot sharpies and then went on to, although not as helmsman as crew, on stars and dragons. So it was, uh, it really was an excellent facility. At Ham um, we had lots and lots of other activities that we could do. There were all manner of sports and all manner of hobbies clubs And interestingly, during the winter, so that we got the maximum daylight hours, we used to go to school in the mornings. And then in the afternoons, 
we used to do our sports or our pastimes. I was a member of the Model Railway Club. I also played rugby, soccer. And, uh, and then we'd go back to school at about half past four till half past six, have dinner and then prep and then bed. So it was best utilisation of the time available. And uh, I really enjoyed ham school, but I did have a sense that, as I've said before, I, I, I really wanted to uh, have more freedom than we were given. I can understand that the school were in loco parentis, but we were confined to the school unless we were with teachers. Whereas prior to that, I'd been used to just roaming the countryside with my friends. Anyway, eventually we came back to England in 1966 and I went to uh, Ramsey Abbey Grammar School. My father was at RAF Upwood nearby and I spent two years there. I did my GCEs as they were then and at the end of my GCEs I got six. I didn't really feel that I had the application to carry on and do A-levels and so I joined the RAF as an aircraft apprentice a three-year course at the number one radio school at Locking. Again, I felt when I went to Locking, a sense that I wasn't getting the freedom I wanted, but this was quite natural. I just wasn't used to a military environment. The course there was excellent. In fact, it was so good that some industry people were putting their apprentices through the course and then paying to buy them out at the end of it. So it was uh, very good. The, the course consisted, it was quite academic. There was uh, all the normal academic subjects, English, maths, physics. And then, of course, we did um, electronics. And we, we did uh, workshops where we uh, made radios and soldered connections and all that sort of thing. And then we gradually progressed on to uh, the actual equipment we'd be working on on aircraft. Yeah, the, the, um, the ethos of the course was that we would become technicians who could rapidly diagnose aircraft faults, change a box when necessary, and let that aircraft go flying again. We were not so much um, people that were going to work on a bench and, and repair stuff. What aircraft were you working on, or, or was it a range of the aircraft that the uh, RAF had at the time? At uh, RAF Locking, um, they had a range of the aircraft which were available to us at, at the time. Um, they had a couple of uh, uh, aircraft for air experience flying, which we used to do occasionally, but they had um, uh, a Shackleton, um, a Lincoln, um, a Meteor, a vampire, lots of things which had just really just gone out of service. Yeah, what about in-service stuff? Did you have, like, the Vulcan? No. Um, when I left locking after my three years in 1962, I, uh, I was posted to RAF Waddington, which was a Vulcan station, and I found that it was a very, very steep learning curve because the only current in-service equipment which we'd done at locking had been the SDR-18 HF radio, the uh, VUHF set, and um, Green Satin, which was which was a Doppler navigator. So, but the Vulcan, of course, had a lot more equipment than this, including um, uh, an aft-facing radar and uh, a lot of electronic countermeasures, which I'd never even heard of before. 
So it was quite a steep learning curve. At this stage, I was a, a junior technician, and but I very, very soon um, was promoted to corporal and um, carried on my working at, uh, at Waddington. It was, uh, it was a very, very hard time, actually, because there were lots and lots of um, recalls at odd hours of day and night into work um, to get aircraft serviceable, to go um, and supposedly bomb Russia. Uh, we had four aircraft continuously on quick reaction alert, armed with a uh, nuclear weapon, and we used to spend 24 hours there living in caravans by the side of the aircraft so that they could get airborne in the supposed four-minute warning that we were going to get. Because I, I guess this was right at the, the, the height of the Cold War. It was indeed, yes, it was. And one thing which... I did intensely uh, dislike, and I think it could have been cured at, at uh, Waddington, was the fact that our cold weather clothing was absolutely abysmal. So we were working on the line on these aircraft in the middle of winter, and all we had were, were cast-off Korean War jackets, and um, we just get extremely cold at times. But it was, it was quite a fulfilling job, and um, I, I quite enjoyed it. I did manage, whilst I was there, to do a trip to the States in a Vulcan, um, and uh, so that was good and then after about 18 months one by one my friends were getting posted to Borneo because the Borneo conflict was on at the time and I thought that I was going to follow them I'd, in the uh, time I'd been at Waddington I'd met and married my wife Sharon and so I expected to go across the Borneo and do a year unaccompanied and I was absolutely delighted when I actually got a posting to Garlingkirchen in Germany. So we had a delightful couple of years in Garlingkirchen. I was working on Canberra's. We were members of the, um, of the gliding club. Um, Sharon became pregnant and the chief flying instructor was, was her doctor, doctor. And she said, well, how long can I fly? And he said, well, so long as you can get the straps up, done up, you can fly. <laughs> and I also there joined the, the flying club. We had a, an Oster and a Tiger Moth, and I did a bit of flying in those. And then I decided that um, working on aeroplanes was, was a mugs game because I would work on an aeroplane and then some guys would come along and go and enjoy themselves flying it. So I thought I really ought to be aircrew. So I applied... For aircrew, I applied to be a pilot, uh, as everyone does. But uh, I didn't make pilot, but I was selected for NCO aircrew. And so my time was in Germany was cut short, and I was posted to Topcliffe to do the air, air electronics operator course. This was uh, about a year course, and uh, the main subject there really was learning Morse. We had about two or three lessons a day in Morse, uh, plus radio procedures. And then, we, of course, we did survival exercises, leadership exercises, and all that sort of do. And then we progressed on to flying in varsities, otherwise known as pigs. And we flew over the North Sea, reporting real and imaginary contacts to... RAF radio stations, all in Morse. Um, and then 
after my year there, I was posted down to St Morgan to convert to the Shackleton. The conversion course really taught us to be maritime operators. As I said, most of the time at Topcliffe was really just communications. But of course, once we got onto Shackleton's, we had to operate the radar, we had to operate sonics, um, we had a rudimentary electronic support measure radar intercept gear. And we also had guns as well. We had uh, 20 millimeter cannons. And they trusted you with them? I think there were probably more danger to the people on the aeroplane than there were to the people on the ground or on the sea or anywhere else we might be <laughs> flying. Um, so having completed the course at Topcliffe, I was posted to RAF Bally Kelly in uh, Northern Ireland. There was a short conversion there because the aircraft which we'd trained on at St Morgan was the Mark... It was called a T4, but it was actually a Mark One Shackleton. Was this uh, before the trouble started? Yes, this was just before the trouble started. This would have been in 1967. Yeah, because the troubles kicked off in about 69, didn't they? They did, they did, yes. We, um, in fact, it wasn't 67, it was 68 when I went to Ballykelly. Um, so I converted onto the, on 204 Squadron, onto the Mark II Phase Three Shackleton. The Phase Three denoted that it had the electrical system to carry nuclear weapons. And we, we actually carried torpedoes and nuclear depth charges. Um, I enjoyed my time at Ballykelly. It was uh, it was a good air. The Shackleton was a good aeroplane to fly. The crew consisted of two pilots, who were commissioned, a flight engineer who generally was a senior NCO, two navigators who were commissioned, and then five senior NCO air electronics operators. So we we operated uh, all the equipment, but we also in anti-submarine warfare. Uh, a visual lookout is still a very, very effective way of spotting submarines, um, particularly diesel-electric submarines that are going to snort for a, quite a period of the time. Yeah. And so the, the Shackleton had the... Um, in front of the pilots had a lookout position. Yeah. And that guy was also the gunner. Um, it had two blister windows in the port and starboard beams and then a perspex tail uh, that you could actually look out of as well. So um, it, it, was, it was some very, very nice places to sleep on the aeroplane, in fact. <laughs> and the uh, sitting at the front in the sun, um, it got quite warm and it very, really was a very soporific place to be. Um, whilst we were on, the, whilst at Ballykelly, uh, we did an awful lot. We spent a lot of time up in Bodo in northern Norway waiting for the Russians to come out uh, so that we could go and play with them. We uh, used to go and try and detect their submarines, photograph their warships, and generally to them, I suppose, make a nuisance of ourselves. Not a lot of fun in the winter up in Bodo. It was extremely cold. But what, one thing which did amaze me uh, was the visibility up there. The visibility was quite incredible. And I remember on um, one occasion we were tootling along and the radar operator came up and said that he had a, an intermittent contact at about 18 miles. I was sitting in the front seat with, with binoculars and I, I just had to say, this is ridiculous. It's a submarine snorting and there's an aircraft flying around it. And sure enough, when we got there, it was a Russian Fox-class submarine with a Norwegian um, amphibious aircraft flying around it. So right. they, 
visibility is absolutely amazing. But we spent a lot of time up there and um, had some quite exciting um, flying because the Shackleton wasn't the most reliable of aircraft and we lost engines in all sorts of uh, embarrassing places. So you, so you must have seen the Northern Lights a few times up there. Yes, the Northern Lights and also um, St Elmo's Fire, which is um, uh, it's a, a lightning function. What happens as the aircraft flies through the air, uh, it gets electrically charged, and then with the propellers rotating, um, you, you get a, a discharge, an electronic discharge from the propellers, and you get discs of... Um, discs around the electronic discs around the propellers which is a really quite a sight amazing and then at the end of um 1969 pardon, the end of 1968 um i was uh posted to 203 squadron which was designated to go to malta in early 1969 quite happy about that um the only thing was that the 203 Squadron were flying Mark III Shackletons, which were very, very similar. In fact, the inside was indistinguishable, except it had a nose wheel. So the, the tail that we used to climb up through was, was way up in the air. And the joke was that uh, it wasn't a conversion course, you just had your ankle joints changed. <laughs> um, the, the Mark III Shackleton was also interesting in another way, in that it had four... Griffin petrol engines, but it also in the inboard engines had Viper jets as well in the, in the rear of the nacelles. So we had six, six engines on those aeroplanes. Did it make it go quicker or was it more efficient? It, it was basically because the aircraft were getting too heavy, and particularly the Mark III with a, a heavier nose wheel undercarriage and there'd been soundproofing put in them, there'd been extra electrics, and the aircraft were getting almost dangerously overweight. And uh, and so we used these for takeoff mainly. Uh, the, the, the jet, the Viper jet, is the one which is used in the jet provost. So we, we had two jet provosts under the wings. Oh, that's fair enough. Yeah, it was... Uh, but we, we did have occasions when, um, as I say, the aircraft were getting very unreliable. And we had occasions when we were when we had absolutely all the aircraft, all the engines unserviceable. Not, I might add, when we were flying, but when we were on the ground and we came to start. Is that because you were close to some sort of five-star hotel, really nice beach location? or? Well, or I do it... remember on one occasion in Cyprus, we were, an aircraft had been there for a long time, about 10 days, so they decided to change. They had to fly a couple of engines out in an Argosy, which is dating, and so they put our crew into this Argosy and we went to take this aeroplane over from the um, the crew and released them to come back to uh, back to Malta. I bet they weren't happy about that. They were very happy about that, I must admit. But we had the same problems. The problems just continued. We had overheating engines, we had misfiring engines. And I remember on one occasion, uh, there was a telephone call to the, to the sergeant's mess and... The tannoy came up. Would any member of the do-it-yourself Shackleton crew like to answer this telephone, please? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, they were. Um, they were. They were good aeroplanes. They were a little bit antique. They should have been replaced a long time previously, but they weren't. And uh, 
I had uh, a lovely three years in Malta. My daughter was born out there. And uh, overall, it was I, uh, I heard what Tim was saying about Malta and I would agree with everything he says. It's, it was a wonderful place to be. The, the naval air stations, by the time I got there, were closed. So there was just, just Luca. And, um, yeah, it, was, it really was... Um, really was a nice place to be. It was great for the children to grow up and um, I, I enjoyed the, the flying. And of course, that is where I really got into uh, offshore sailing. So, where did, what, um, what was the sailing about there? Did you have your own yacht down there? or? Yeah, they had um, service yachts. We had uh, an RAF sailing club down at Martis Lock in the south of the island, which, was, uh, which had a lot of dinghies. Um, Albacores, um, Enterprises, GP14s, that sort of thing. Uh, but it also we also had a folk boat, and that's what I was more interested in. So I used to sail the, uh, the folk boat with a few other people. And at the time, the Middle Sea Race, which has become quite a famous race, was just starting. And we managed to charter a boat, uh, a Nicholson 32, and do the second middle sea race um, for those that, that don't know the, the middle sea race is the Mediterranean equivalent of the fast net it, it's about the same distance as the fast net just over 700 miles and it, the course in those days and I believe it's changed several times since was to leave Grand Harbour in Malta north up, north up the coast around the island of Gozo Southwest down to the small island of Lampedusa, turn north around another island called Pantelleria, and then and along the north coast of Sicily, around Stromboli, down to the Straits of Malta, that uh, Straits of Messina, and then back to Malta. And it uh, there, was, there was race that I first went in. I think there were only eight boats, but this has become quite a big race now, and in. What I managed to do eventually was three races whilst we were in Malta on Shackleton's. Um, and then we went back to Malta eventually and I did another three races as a skipper. Oh, so, so you had a real dab hand at the Middle Sea race? Yes, and it was normally held in November, so the weather could be absolutely awful. And typical Mediterranean, it would change in a flash from, from a flat calm where you were wishing for wind to a huge gale when you were wishing for less wind. <laughs> but it was, overall, it was a damn good race. Um, so I did three years, uh, just over three years, in fact, in Malta. And then Don Mintoff came along and said that he would like us to leave. So we loaded all our uh, torpedoes and we didn't have uh, nuclear weapons out there, onto the aircraft and prepared the aircraft for coming back to the UK. At the time, the Nimrods had also started arriving and they went to replace the Shackletons and they went to, uh, to Sigonella. All the families were flown out and um, I ended up back in the UK. I had quite a lot of leave to take, which I did, and then I went on to the conversion course to go up onto the, uh, onto the Nimrod. The Nimrod was, the one Nimrod was, equipment-wise, 
was not too dissimilar from the Shackleton. We still had the same radios, we had the same radar, we had the same um, electronic support measures, and we had the same Mark 1C Sonics. What we did have in addition was uh, a system called Jezebel, which was a low-frequency acoustic system. Dropped Sonoboys into the water, they listened, and we, we had a printout of what was in the water, be it surface vessels, submarines, and I was, at this stage, an acoustic operator, and my job was to sort out all these lines on, on a graph and to um, decide whether we had surface vessels, whether we had surface vessels and submarines, and, and what have you. And we became quite adept at, at that. But it was very limited in the early days. So the Nimrod had just come into service, and it was a... A new aircraft, so that must have been really exciting to be on. It, it was, especially after um, after the Shackleton, which was basically World War Two technology. And um, the, the Nimrod, all right, it, it was built. It was built from the uh, Comet, and the, the Comet first flew in 1948. In fact, the same time as the the Shackleton. But of course, it was it was a whole era forward in technology. Well, the Comet was built at Hatfield. It was indeed. That's where I, I grew up. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so you must have seen a lot of them. Yeah, we saw quite a few as I was growing up during the 60s, that's yeah. for sure. Well, the, the Nimrod was a, a shortened Comet 4 with a pannier below it for a Bombay. Uh, in fact, it was probably the biggest Bombay that uh, any aircraft, any RAF aircraft has had. Um, that was armed, the Nimrod was armed with... Um, the same torpedoes, the Mark 30 passive torpedo and the Mark 46 active torpedo and nuclear depth bombs. And, uh, yeah, and we, I finished the Nimrod conversion course and was posted up to RAF Kinloss on 206 Squadron. Um, we did more or less the same as we'd done on Shackleton's, except that we tended to do it a lot quicker. We could get to places a lot quicker. We could... Um, stay uh, the aircraft basically was was far more effective so did at that time did they have refueling capability on it no th no they didn't that ca that came later um that came during the um operation corporate in the uh, the Falklands conflict during my time on um, 206 squadron the RAF was committed to reinforcing the Anzac people in um South Southeast Asia and w so we based two nimrods in Singapore for three-month periods. And so in January 1974, I flew in the Nimrod west about to Singapore for a three-month stay. The, the routing was Kinloss to Goose Bay in Labrador, refuel, and then on to Offutt in Nebraska, and then on to the west coast of the States, uh, and then on to Hawaii, where we had a day off, and then through a small island called Wake Island, which had our fingers crossed, we had our legs crossed, we had everything crossed, that we had no unserviceabilities there because all it was was a coral runway, a Coke machine, and some Americans with fuel. Uh, <laughs> miles away from anywhere. <laughs> no no five-star hotel? No five-star <laughs> hotel at all, but all we did was stopped in there for a Coke and some, uh, some fuel. At the time, we were beginning to get some unserviceabilities on the aircraft, and 
the thing was that until we were, our next stop was Guam, and until we were airborne from Guam, the people we were replacing in Singapore couldn't take off to go home. So we got to, uh, we got to Guam, and normally we would have gone to the US Navy base, but the powers that be in their uh, wisdom sent us to the US Air Force base. You can imagine this place, because it was the height of the Vietnam War, and the place was wall-to-wall B-52s. And so when we went into the bar in the evening, we had all sorts of uh, questions like, what are you, and what's that thing that sticks out of the back? Which is something I hadn't mentioned, which is a magnetic anomaly detector. Uh, so as a submarine is in the water, it's the equivalent of a bar magnet in the Earth's magnetic field, and it disturbs the Earth's magnetic field so that if you fly low at about 200 feet over this submarine, you can um, detect the anomaly that it's having in the Earth's magnetic field. Amazing. People just don't know about this sort of thing. I guess that technology's old now and it's moved on. It, it, it is quite old, yes. Yeah. In fact, the, um, the new maritime aircraft, the Poseidon, doesn't have it. So, yeah, so we got to Guam. And uh, we, we had, say, had all these questions. So how low do you have to fly? Well, about 200 feet. Geez, when are you leaving? Oh, tomorrow. Can you give us a low fly pass as you go? So we said, yeah, of course we will. So the pilots called up the tower when we left, and they said, yeah, not below 300 feet. So we flew down the runway at something like about 50 feet, and then pulled up into the slowest climb, a V2 climb, which the Nimrod does very impressively. And as we were getting to the top of this climb, they, uh, we got a call from the tower saying that um, a flight, we, we d- disobeyed our uh, instructions, that uh, flight infringement was being filed against us. But at that stage, we lost an engine and had to go back. Which <laughs> <laughs> was very embarrassing. So our, our detachment commander, who was uh, asleep in one of the seats down the back and was completely oblivious to what had gone on, was summoned to the base commander in his uh, in his best uniform. <laughs> um, one way without coffee, was it? <laughs> it was, uh, yes, one way talk without coffee, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think the base commander was too annoyed because he was a pilot himself and I don't think he was, but he had to go through the, uh, through the rigmarole. So we were then in uh, in Guam for about 10 days, along with an RAF Hercules and an RAF Victor, who also had unservice abilities, waiting for uh, a new engine to be flown out. Um, what we did manage to do there was uh, hire a car and uh, drive around the island. We hired scuba gear and went scuba diving, um, anything to pass the time. And really feeling sorry for the guys that had been in Singapore for three months and, and couldn't go home until we were airborne. And eventually we did get airborne and um, and, and get to Singapore and these guys left. So the, the deal was that you you flew an aircraft out, west about, and went home on a transport aircraft, or you went out on a transport aircraft and flew an aircraft home. Actually, flying an aircraft home was the best deal because you could take all your ill-gotten gains from Singapore more easily in an Umrod than you could on a transport <laughs> aircraft. But the, the Westabout was, uh, was something not to be missed. It was really interesting. It was, it was very tiring because 
each time you uh, go west, you you um, lose time. So yeah, you, you lose an hour every every fifteen degrees. Yeah. So um, you end up having flown for nine hours, get to somewhere and it's the middle of the day. You spend the rest of the day as you would, and then the next day you do the same again, and it's um, you, you find that you're doing. 18 hour, 20 hour day is a little right. bit of jet lag going on there, didn't yeah. You? Well, lots of jet lag, but uh, yeah. And we were based in Singapore at RAF Tenga, uh, along with a couple of Australian uh, squadrons and Mirages and some, um, some of the old Bristol freighters. So, what was Singapore like at that time? Singapore was um, becoming very much more modernized, there was still the old um local villages and that sort of thing. It's nothing like as modern as it is now, but it was actually becoming... Singapore City was becoming very, very modern. Uh, there were some excellent hotels. Not that we stayed in them, we had to stay on base, unusually. But there, there was... Uh, there's some, there must have been rows and rows of, of five-star hotels. And, of course, Rattles was, uh, was going as well. So um, on, on time off, we did a lot of water skiing. We uh, went down to Singa down to Singapore City and um, went to happy hours in uh, various posh hotels, and generally had a good time. Um, we we flew every other day whilst the aircraft was serviceable, and in fact, on one occasion, both the Nimrods were unserviceable, and uh, a Russian ship was coming through the Straits, and we had to fly on a Bristol freighter with a camera to take photographs of this thing. <laughs> that must have been fascinating. It that, was. Was, that must have been a right joy. Yeah, it Proper was. Proper step down. It was, it was, yeah, yeah. So eventually we uh, we got back to um, Kinloss. And then later that year, I had a phone call from my um, AE leader who... who chap who'd been my A leader in Malta on Shackleton's, saying, um, we're getting a bit thin on the ground in Malta with, uh, with uh, people who've got Mediterranean experience. Would you be interested in going back? So after I'd bitten his hand off, <laughs> um, away we went back to Malta. Um, so two or three squadron, two or three squadron Nimrods, um, we've... It, Malta hadn't changed. The people were still absolutely lovely. And my job was more or less the same, except perhaps we flew a little bit more than we had on Shackleton's. Um, but the, my wife and the children grew up on the beach uh, every day. The normal working hours were from half past six until 12, which we did when we were not flying. But obviously when we were flying, we just flew whatever hours we needed to fly. But so quite a lot of the time um, we went to the beach, we spent time at the, uh, a lot of time at the sailing club. By this time the boat boat had gone and we had an arpege, that courtesy of uh, service charities and especially Mr Nuffield. And this, the arpege of course was big enough to race in the middle sea race. So um, I raced that uh, three years in the uh, middle sea race. How did you do in the race? Um, 
not very well because by that stage, uh, what had happened was that um, the rule, the IOR rules had changed, and so all the boats which had been competitive were replaced by the more modern saucer-shaped boats. Um, and not only that, but a lot of um, very, very serious racers had learnt about the Middle Sea Race in the three years that I was absent. And so there were some really top national sailors when Bumblebee, the Australian boat, was there, for instance. And um, the Italian uh, Navy boat, uh, Stella Polaris, which, which wasn't, um, again, that, that was a very old boat, but there were some very, very top-notch Italian sailors and Maltese sailors. So we, we brought, up the, uh, brought up the tail of the fleet. And in fact, on one occasion, just between Malta and Lampedusa, we hit something, I don't know what it was, perhaps a gas cylinder or something underwater. We were doing about six and a half, seven knots with a spinnaker up, a huge bang, and uh, the boat broached. We took the spinnaker down, because we had absolutely no control over the boat, and um, we didn't really know what the damage was, but we weren't leaking, so we eventually managed, without the spinnaker, we managed to managed to control the boat, and it wasn't until about two days later when the water was calm, we noticed that um, the skeg had gone completely, and the um, the rudder was bent out at about 15 degrees from the vertical. Oh, no wonder it made it difficult to steer. Yeah, we actually did learn to to, to steer the boat, and, and after that we, we carried on with the, uh, the spinnaker and everything, and um, just sailed it as a, a normal boat, but it was... Uh, it wasn't a very nice happening. Unfortunately, we didn't get any really rough weather so uh, during that race. So I don't think we could have coped with, uh, with rough weather. We'd probably have had to gone into one of the Sicilian harbours. Um, right. Um, yeah, about halfway through my tour in Malta, I was uh, asked if I would like to go into the Maritime Acoustic Analysis Unit. Now... I mentioned that we had this equipment on board the aircraft which detected the low frequencies from submarines and from surface vessels and what have you. And all this stuff, when it came back, needed analysing. If the crew had um, decided that they had detected a submarine, that needed verifying. And also, of course, before the crews went flying, they needed briefing on oceanographic conditions and what have you. And so that became my job. Um, there were a team of five of us in there. We worked shifts. And um, we we basically um, told we were the verifying force for the uh, for any intelligence which, which came back. Does that mean that you, you stopped flying then? I, I wasn't there. That was a, that was a ground tour. Um, I still retained my flying pay because I was uh, still eligible to fly and what it did mean is I had to go to um, the joint acoustic analysis unit in Teddington and do an advanced analysis course which was uh, just a couple of weeks and so the rest of my tour in Malta I was uh, in in an office briefing people debriefing them when they came back and um, it was it was it was really really I found it absolutely fascinating and there was an awful lot of um, power in the job, I suppose, because um, we were we were saying yes, this this contact is worth pursuing, or 
no, guys, I'm so sorry, you got it wrong this time, um, and this is why you got it wrong, and, and what. Um, so, because the, the Nimrod became so complicated, there were a lot of aircrew on the ground in, in support of the uh, in support of the aircraft on the acoustic side and also on the electronic warfare side. Well, that was brilliant, Mike. What we'll do is we'll leave that there and then we'll pick it up again in the next episode. So in the meantime, thanks for listening. <laughs>